Let's uh, bow our heads and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for another another safe week. Uh, thank you for an, one day at the end to continue to remind us of of who and what you are. We ask your guidance uh, today in the Holy Spirit as we begin the study uh, on quarterly uh, on the study of Galatians. Uh, got our got our study, got our thoughts uh, today as we examine these things. Um, us continued blessings on each individual and each family represented. Please continue to bless our our group uh, individually and corporately. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Lesson one in our new quarterly on Galatians is entitled "Paul, Apostle to the Gentiles." It starts out with um, Paul when he was known as Saul. It starts out before his conversion, and it it discusses several things about how um, the lesson seemed. In fact, the first uh, paragraph says it's not hard to understand Saul of Tarsus uh, and why he did what he did. Is it really not hard to understand? Why he did what he did? I mean, I. But why? What? Well, what do we think? What's our understanding of what the root of Saul's initial persecution of, of the Jews was? Well, okay, he was certainly a religious zealot, but what? I think it goes deeper than that. Well, what, what was at the very? What was at the bottom of it? His picture of God. Ah. Did you? Did everyone hear him? So this picture of God, uh, I think that's dead on. I think he had a, an incorrect God concept. Um, he, he had, um, you know, Scripture and, and, and by Paul's own testimony later in the New Testament and uh, inspired writing, as we understand from Ellen White, uh, indicates that he was very, very smart and he was being, groom- he was being groomed by the, the rabbis and, and the Pharisees to be a a significant leader, and he had access to all of the um, all the oracles, all the all the writings of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, he understood them very clear. Well, not very clearly, but he I'm, I'm sure he could recite passages and pages and entire chapters from memory. And yet, reading all that and, and, and having a, a certain understanding of that, he was still part of the group that was looking for a Messiah to come and throw off the yoke of, of Roman oppression and, quote, free the Jews to allow them to become a nation uh, in and of themselves. Yes? I think he also was a man in turmoil. In other words, he had this maybe wrong picture of God, but he'd been confronted with maybe a different picture of God through Stephen's um, preaching and teaching, and then martyrdom, and the other disciples, and there was a there, the Holy Spirit was working with him. So there, he 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 saw that there may be a different way of looking at things, but because of what didn't fit his picture, how he'd been raised and how he'd been taught, there was a great internal turmoil, maybe too. I I think you're dead right, and and um, let's see. In Monday's lesson, we're going to touch on that a little more deeply. But uh, you bring up a great point. Um, this uh, this is a quote from the Teachers Quarterly. I don't know if any of you have this? It says, "You want to become really bad? 
not bad as in, quote, misunderstood, not bad as in a diamond in the rough kind of character with the proverbial heart of gold, but bad as in some of the world's most evil men, you must start by convincing yourself that you're good. So good, in fact, that you believe you're better than anyone else or that you can do no wrong. Not only that, but you have to have God on your side, and anyone who opposes you opposes God. Sound familiar? French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal wrote, quote, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. That could be you. It could be any of us. In misguided devotion, we put ourselves in God's place and stop listening to the real God. Any thoughts on that passage? I just think it's really hard to leave traditions behind. And traditions at that time was if you were a heretic, it was all right to stone you um, or a sinner of some sort. And so, mm-hmm. and we, we have a hard time in this class leaving traditions that maybe aren't Bible-based um, that we've grown up with. That's time. right. I, frankly, I don't think it's any more, any less difficult to leave tradition today than it was 2,000 years ago. In fact, it may even be more difficult. We don't physically stone people, but do we stone their character? Do we, you know, assassinate them behind their back? A gossip, innuendo, whatever. Um, I think that I think you're dead right, and, and the same type of behavior goes on today. I think it probably is more effective by doing that character assassination than actual physical assassination. Yeah, yeah exactly. We get to see them suffer more. Right. Longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, my question. You know, well, so so we've we've uh, examined that. Um, you know, certainly a big big portion of Paul's um, or Saul's persecution of the of the then early Christians was from a false god concept or a misunderstanding of who God was. Uh, and my my rhetorical question is: Are are we today? Um, if we believe in a similar God concept, are we in danger of similar or even worse persecution with those who do not share our beliefs? Okay. Yes, sir. I find there's always the danger with me that I want to be the defender of the faith. The problem with that is then I set myself up above everybody else. Okay. Did everyone hear what he said? That's that's a difficult that's a difficult um, that's a tightrope to walk. Um, you know, there there are some on one one end of the spectrum that suggests that God is is perfectly able to defend His own cause, um, and there are those at the other end of the spectrum that suggest that He needs He needs our help. Um, I would imagine that the reality lies somewhere in the middle. Um, I do believe that we are called to to play our role in, in the revelation of the of the true character of God, and, I, and not only amongst ourselves, but to the remain the rest of the universe. Um, it remains a powerful testimony to watch a sinful, self-absorbed human be transformed through the, the healing grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit um, to a selfless being who, who puts other people's best interests ahead of their own. 
that that remains a powerful testimony to angels and to um, and to other humans. Yes. I just was going to say we need to look to Jesus. Did he defend himself? Wasn't he was he a defender of the faith, or did he just live the faith by his example? Um, and even at his trial, what did he do to defend himself? Very little. Well, he did a little to defend himself, but he, he he still revealed the true character of God. Yeah, by his life. Right, yeah. and his death. Well, yes, of course. Oftentimes when we are tempted to defend ourselves, I mean, this can be in our marriages, with our kids, mm-hmm. you know, life. Instead of defending, turn around and ask more questions about where they're coming from. Because oftentimes our defense doesn't really even meet the need, okay? Right. They, and just find out why they're thinking that way, and you can really learn a lot more about them, and then they realize that you're interested in them and not just being defensive, mm-hmm. okay? And I think Jesus all, often did that. He turned something around and asked a question. Yeah, there's a saying um, goes... Well, was it seek to understand before seeking to be understood? Something like that. Um, let's look. Uh, let's look ahead to Sunday's lesson. Uh, we're still we're still examining uh, Saul's persecution of the uh, Christians. Someone look up Acts six nine through fifteen, please, and someone else uh, Matthew twenty six fifty nine through sixty one. Whoever has the Acts text, just go ahead and start reading it when you have it. We're looking here at the um, at what 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 was the catalyst that started uh, the persecution and then ultimately stoning of Stephen. Acts six nine through fifteen, please. Don't be shy. Go ahead. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the Freedom, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, uh, the lesson uh, then asks, um, you know, the, the, we're given the story of Stephen and asks, who, who are we reminded of here? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus that's correct. Um, when he when he speaks in Matthew twenty six fifty nine, uh, whoever has that text, read it, please. Fifty nine through sixty one. Then, 
The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidences against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Okay, what what are some of the similarities here? There was one that jumped right out of me. Similarities between these two stories. Quoting them out of context and making false accusations against them and hiring people to do that. Okay. Paid false paid false witnesses. Uh, anything else? Yes. Both Jesus and Stephen were quiet. Okay, they were they were self-composed, um, you know, being gifted by the Holy Spirit with the gift of self-control. Anything else? In both instances, the accusations were, you know, he's speaking ill against Moses, and he's speaking ill against this temple, and, and in Jesus' case, he said he'd destroy this temple. There's this sense of, a tradition, something that has been held on to and prized, even if one no longer understands what's at the heart of the tradition mm -hmm. or why it's believed, mm -hmm. or a physical building is more important than a new idea. Right. That, that was. Th this is exactly what jumped out at me first thing, is that both, both Stephen and Christ were referring to the spirit temple or the spirit sanctuary. Uh, you know, Christ said, destroy this temple. He's referring to you know his his physical body being destroyed and, and his his spirit temple being destroyed and I will raise it up again in three days. Um, and Stephen was referring back to the words of Christ in in the same manner. Um, I don't know if you folks realize this. But this is one of the this is one of the misunderstandings between our Sabbath school. And the church, the Collegedale Church, they do not, we do not see eye to eye on the idea of the spirit temple. And, and or the idea of a physical sanctuary being in heaven, which I, I think the two are linked. Okay, this, this is... This is an example, yet another example of, uh, and <clears throat> let me tell you something. You know, witnesses and false witnesses have come forward uh, speaking out against Tim and me and and other members and, and, and teachers in this class and have engaged in character assassination, et cetera, et cetera. If it worked for Satan 2,000 years ago, it's probably going to work for him again today. You know, the, the tactics remain the same. And we need to be wise as serpents and be able to recognize them and gentle as lambs. So that we we do not uh, we do not act and react as our human nature would have us. Um, at the bottom, someone read the bottom of Sunday's lesson. The, the little uh, pink uh, section there, please. Convinced he was right, Saul was willing to put to death those whom he thought wrong. While we need to have zeal and fervor for what we believe. How do we learn to temper our zeal with the realization that, at times, we just might be wrong? 
Any strategies for tempering our zeal? Yes. Well, this discussion about the sanctuary and the importance of understanding that Jesus is our is the temple uh, doesn't negate the importance of the symbols of the temple and whether there's an actual structure in heaven or not is really immaterial in terms of salvation. It's just a symbol of who Christ is and um, what he's done for us and what he's continuing to do for us as he um, mediates for us, uh, trying to convince us to be what he wants us to be. I agree. So uh, I, I don't, Tim has even said that. He says, I don't care if there's an actual structure in heaven, that's fine. Correct. It's the understanding of what Jesus is. Yes. I think sometimes, too, it's it's an openness or willingness to, to learn the truth about God. Um, and that that has implications, I think, on how, how we act. And also our picture of God reflects how we act and deal with how we want to share our faith. Jesus was very... Um, forthright and, and open about what God was like, but he didn't compel or force people to say, you, you buy it or, you're, or you're, <laughs> you're going to suffer the consequences. You will suffer natural consequences, but he wasn't there to try to um, coerce them or force them to do something they weren't prepared to do. And, and that is related to how you see how, how um, God works and what is important. Well said. There's a, there's a section later in the lesson that suggests that, that God compelled uh, Saul to conversion. Uh, we're going to examine that here in a little bit. Yes? I, just a, a question. I mean, why would we ever have to temper our zealousness if we're zealous for the correct things? Christ was zealous in his love for every human sinner. It wasn't that he was necessarily zealous to protect a particular tenant or law or sanctuary, but there's no reason to ever temper your zealousness if you're after the correct end. It's true. Okay. Uh, I agree, but I think there are precious few of us who um, follow in Christ's footsteps and actually put that to practice. Uh, I mean, if... If if he if he is our indeed our example and that's our that's what we're emulating then, you know the 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 Holy Spirit is a spirit of love, truth, peace, and ultimately self control. Uh, and, and if if we're being guided by the Spirit, you know we're going to present the truth in a loving manner and leave others free to make their own decision. That's what Christ did. You know he was very zealous. To reveal the character of God. The character of God is to present his truth in a loving manner and leave people free to decide. No no pressure, no coercion, no nothing. Well, there is occasionally pressure. I mean, I was sitting back here listening. The rich young ruler is the one I always think of when I think of the fact that, oh, we should never apply pressure. Well, that, Christ put it pretty bluntly to him. And it was, and the rich young ruler made a decision. He walked away. But there was no honeycoating it from Christ. He looked in his heart. He knew, which I'd love to be able to look in everybody's heart. I can only look at mine, but right. um, he knew what this person needed to face, and he challenged it. Well, there, there's, I still, I still would submit that he presented that truth in a loving manner, and, and left him free to decide. Brian, um, we had uh, our 
fellow South School members said, you know, he feels like he has to be the defender of the faith. And I feel that a lot of us, when we start these conversations, we start on a high horse, whereas we're and that's you know what we think to be zealous is we have the answers we know the truth and we you know it's exciting when you think you know something that's correct right you want to share it with people but i've always tried to approach it as a conversation because as with anything you can always learn something from whoever you're trying to preach to and whether it be you know lifestyle or the sanctuary it's you can always learn so i think that you should temper your zealousness with a sense of conversation and a learning opportunity. I think that's well said. David, you had a comment? The foundation of all of this is freedom. Yes, love and freedom. freedom. The foundation of the sanctuary is freedom. The the foundation of what Jesus had done with the rich young ruler or anyone else was based on freedom. He allowed him to be free. He chose to go the other way. And when it comes to what's happening from Paul's time, and even in today, there are people who are trying to force their way of life or their religion mm. on us or, or anybody else. And in this class or any part of the church or anywhere else, if we don't allow freedom, if we don't allow people to express their thoughts and their views, we're doing the same thing all over again. Uh, well said. Yes, sir. There was an occasion when Jesus said to uh, the people, you have to eat my flesh drink my blood. What happened to the many disciples he had? Many of them left. Right. Because that Jesus said to his own 12, do you want to leave me too? In other words, if you want to leave, feel free to do so. Right. Forcing you to be my disciples. Right. And their answer was, who else can I go? Where, where will we go? So Peter said that Peter said that Tim, I, I think there's just a difference between a zealousness to reveal truth and a zealousness to condemn. In other words, like, in other words, you know, like the, the kind of what she had said about, you know, high horse versus just revealing the truth and leaving it free. Okay. Thank you. Um, let's look ahead to Monday's lesson. This uh, here we're talking about the actual conversion of Paul, the conversion experience of Paul, and uh, midway to, uh, halfway down the page, the, the lesson asks, "What role did the grace of God have in in Paul's uh, Saul's conversion experience?" Thoughts? I brought up before his hit, you know, this turmoil with with Stephen, and I think that. Stephen was a huge... I don't know if Paul was old enough to have experienced... um, My biblical understanding of history is not good enough, at least at that point, to understand whether he was around or a young man when Jesus was alive or Mm -hmm. he was just an infant or a young boy or what. But So I don't know what he knew about Jesus per se, but clearly he saw, as, as exemplified by Stephen, something that was incredibly moving... And I think he couldn't get that out of his head. Well, interesting you bring that up. Acts of the Apostles, page 102. The martyrdom of Stephen made a deep impression upon all who witnessed it. Scripture is quite clear that, Paul, uh, that Saul witnessed this. The memory of the signet of God upon his face, his words which touched the very souls of those who heard them, remained in the minds of the beholders and testified to the truth of that which he had proclaimed. 
His death was a sore trial to the church, but resulted in the conviction of Saul, who could not efface from his memory the faith and constancy of the martyr and the glory that had rested on his countenance. At the scene of Stephen's trial and death, Saul had seemed to be imbued with a frenzied zeal. Afterward, he was angered by his own secret conviction that Stephen had been honored by God at the very time that he was being dishonored by men. Saul continued to persecute the church of God, hunting them down, seizing them in their homes, and delivering them up to the priests and rulers for imprisonment and death. His zeal in caring for the persecution brought terror to the Christians at Jerusalem. The Roman authorities made no special effort to stay the cruel work and secretly aided the Jews in order to conciliate them and secure their favor. Interesting that Rome was trying to secure the favor of uh, Israel as well uh, as the United States today. After the death of Stephen, Saul was elected a member of the Sanhedrin Council in consideration for the part that he had acted on that occasion. For a time, he was a mighty instrument in the hands of Satan to carry out his rebellion against the Son of God. But soon this relentless persecutor was to be employed in the building up of the church that he was now tearing down. One mightier than Satan had chosen Saul to take the place of the martyr Stephen and to preach and suffer for his name and to spread far and wide the teachings of salvation through his blood. So, uh, Mrs. White suggests that indeed Saul had witnessed this and was struggling in his mind and in his heart with you know, the, the two antagonistic principles were at war inside his, inside his, uh, in his heart. The Holy Spirit was speaking to him, and Satan was striving for uh, complete ownership of him. Yes, sir. I think that there are a few words that must have pierced Paul's heart, of Saul's heart, when Christ said, I am Jesus Christ whom you are persecuting. That must have pierced his heart. What? Am I persecuting Jesus? That must have changed his mind completely. Well, yeah, you, one one has to wonder exactly what, what went through his his mind. Um, you know, it, if if he was indeed part of the Sanhedrin and, and the Pharisees, uh, he he may have had uh, an indicate. He may have had the thought that you know Jesus was just a man, and he was indeed not the Son of God, and, and that must have. You know the blinding, the blinding light, the falling down is dead. The you know the the voice from heaven. Uh, who knows what went through his his uh, thoughts at that time? Yes. I think the other thing that just struck me as I was thinking about this is the empower, the powerful impression it has about how God deals with somebody who's so totally opposed to Him in some ways. Mm-hmm. How Jesus so gently dealt with him. Yes, the bright light and everything, and He's blinded. But he just asked him a simple question. There's not any pounding or beating up or thunder, lightning. Yeah, licks here for what mm-hmm. you've done to me and my members of my family, and it's just an incredible picture of love and conciliation to somebody who's been acting like a total jerk. I agree. Well said. Uh, in the bottom half uh, of the lesson, the quote is: "The only thing Saul deserved was punishment." but God extended grace to this fervent Jew instead. Uh, It's important to note, however, that Saul's conversion did not happen in a vacuum, nor was it forced. Well, I agree with the last last sentence, but I do not agree with the first. Um, why, Why did Saul deserve punishment? Or did Saul deserve punishment? It humanized. 
okay, from a human perspective. You've already said that that, that uh, capability is in all of us to have the wrong concept mm-hmm. and to go with zeal in that direction. And that's, that's what he's guilty of. Right. He ignored the spirit. He ignored, he was fighting a battle within himself, his conscience, and he was ignoring it. Does, does that make him deserving of punishment, though? Do we? <laughs> well, in our human <laughs> system of government, yes, an eye for an eye. If you kill somebody, you deserve punishment. For killing, and he persecuted the Christians. So according to human terminology, yes, he deserved punishment, but not on God's terms. Okay, uh, hang on just a second. H- how many of us had... Um, had a choice, had, had any say in, in being born. How many of you guys had a choice in, in, in the, the logistics of that, the timing of that, the gender you were born with, uh, the parents you were born to? Uh, how many of us had any choice? None. <laughs> Nobody asked Dennis, that's right. Above and beyond that, how many of us had a choice of being born sinners? How many of us had choice of being born infected with the disease of sin? None of us did. None of us chose to be born sinners. None of us chose to be born, period. So this, this, this idea, this concept that because we were born sinners, because we, because we showed up on earth through, through no choice of our own, through no, no fault of our own, that we deserve to be punished for that, uh, I think, is a mistake. How, how, how can it be that we deserve to be punished because we were born sinners? We're not born sinners. We're born in sinful flesh. But not, we're not born sinners. We're born infected with sin, which makes us sinners. Infected with sin of, of our posterity. But we all have the choice to choose we're a better way. If we were left in that condition and had no answer for it or no... Healing, that's a different story, but we do. We have a choice to make. We can choose to let God. That, that's correct. That's correct. What you're talking about, it, with none of us have a choice, has always been the back of my mind, predestination. I mean, it's... It, it, no, no, no. I didn't say we didn't have a choice. I said we didn't have a choice to be born. We didn't have a choice to be born with a sinful nature. We, we reach an age where, and we reach a point in our lives, all of us will, that where we will uh, have have the decision to choose between one path or the other. Certainly we have that choice, but we do, we do not choose to be born. We do not choose to be born in a sinful nature. Yes. Is, Go ahead. Yeah. Is your argument with the word deserve? Yes. Okay. I, and or punishment. I mean, you know, what's maybe what's God's, what's God's punishment? Because Romans is pretty clear that the wages of sin are death. Sin pays so its own wage. You define that Paul is not sinful, or Saul is not sinful, then he has earned death. Whether he deserves it or not, I don't, you know, I, you can blame Satan, but he did earn death. Punishment, which death is punishment. But then you're saying that the paycheck I get is a punishment. <laughs> no, your paycheck is a result of what you do. So is wages of death. That's right. That's not the wages. Yeah, it's the result. So the, it's, 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 it's the less the lesson would indicate that Paul deserved to be punished from God. God, the, the Paul, the Saul deserved God's punishment instead of His grace. Okay, I want to make it clear that 
none of us deserves grace. Okay, Grace is a free gift. We don't deserve grace, nor do we deserve punishment. Okay, The, the idea that we deserve punishment is a doctrine of devils. Reference Desire of Ages, page 761. Every sin must be punished, urged Satan. Okay, this this flies in the face of the idea that God, as part of God's character, He is forgiving. Okay, as part of God's government, God want, God's vengeance is to heal us. We're going to look at that in Friday's lesson. God's desire is to make us safe. Okay. Safe for a universe out there that is worried will infect them with the same disease we have. I think, well, I think the rest of the universe has already made up their mind. They, they made up their mind of the cross. Yes. Um, humanity, this planet is the, only, is the only little speck in the entire universe that um, has not made up their mind yet. And, and praise God that he's patient enough to allow allow us to uh, continue to do that. The rest of the universe has to be convinced we're safe to bring into their family. No, uh, that's fair. Uh, I, I, that's God's grace is going to heal us. Okay, I have a lot of hands. Let's start here. The, the Catholic view would be, I think he needs to do some penance. Serious penance. Who, Saul? Yeah. But going back to Acts uh, 2.38, after he had exposed to the people what they had done, crucified the Messiah, the Savior, they said, what can we do? He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So that's the answer. In 1 John 1, 9, we also have the same promise. When we have sinned, we confess our sins, we repent, and God, Christ is righteous to forgive us. And I thought of the woman caught in adultery, uh, people wanted to stone her, remember that? Mm -hmm. And what did Jesus do? He forgave her and said, sin no more. Above and beyond that, what did he do to her accusers? All the sins in he, yes, but he did so in a way that protected their identity and their reputation. He, even those that were accusing her and... Uh, through her, uh, were trying to accuse him, he protected their reputation. He protected the reputation of those who were his avowed enemies, who had chosen to be his enemies. More hands. Yes. I was just going to say that Jesus knew we were lost without him, and he came to seek and to save that which is lost, not to punish us, but to save us and heal us. It's such a simple concept, but it's so hard to grasp. I agree. It is difficult to grasp, isn't it? Yeah, I've struggled mightily with that. Yeah. There's a difference between punishment where somebody is, is you have done something to me and I'm going to get you for that. There's a difference between that and consequences of the sickness that we have. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. The, it's, you know, any physician should, can understand this. If someone comes with uh, pneumonia, you know, fever and coughing and... and um, you know, et cetera, are symptoms of a disease. The the physician, and if unremitied, the physician doesn't have to punish the patient for not for for having pneumonia or for not taking a healing remedy that was offered. The the pneumonia will pay its own price. You know, the physician doesn't have to inflict punishment on them.
the physician doesn't have to surgically open them up and remove a lung, so they don't breathe as well. Pneumonia takes care of it itself. Any other thoughts? All right, let's look at Tuesday's lesson. Um, again, a quote from the Teacher's Quarterly. Saul, Saul, on the other hand, did not so much turn as he was turned uh, until the moment when the living Christ appeared and incapacitates him. We see no sign of a change of heart in Saul. The passages in chapters 8 and 9, and this is of Acts, tell us nothing about his internal state. We see a lot of his external state vividly, vividly described in terms of evoking a fierce predatory animal, referencing Acts 8.3. Was the Holy Spirit working with him? Undoubtedly, but it would have taken greater faith than, than most had then or even have now. Um, this, this quote that I read from, that I just read from uh, Acts of the Apostles suggests that you know, it gives us a little insight into his internal state, uh, I think. And I, I, I don't know that I don't know that the idea of, of Christ, you know, actually turning him and incapacitating him is is the language that best suits this. I mean, Christ Christ got his attention the best way in the best way possible. You know, he, Christ intervened in, in a manner that would get Saul's attention. He asked the question. Uh, you know, I am Jesus, whom you're, why are you persecuting me? He asked the question that is going to be best asked, and he did things in the, in the way that met Saul's need right then and there. Um, you know, I, I've, heard, I've heard several theologies that suggest that, you know, this, this was forced. This conversion was, was forced, on, you know, of God. God forced his conversion in order to... Um, to you know, to gain another soldier for the cause, and um, that goes against the character of God, as I understand it. Yes. God made Saul be still. He didn't force his conversion. Saul could have refused. Sure, he absolutely. Three days. That's he could right. Have said no, but he just—he was a very active, hardworking, driving person, and he just made him stop and be still. He got his attention exactly. You know, that's no different than thundering from uh, Mount Sinai to get the children of Israel's attention. It simply says, "I stand at the door and knock." Right. Uh, he's knocking. It's it's an active part. Mm-hmm. You know, he knocked a little lo- louder that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He may have used his fists instead of his knuckles. Yeah, it's, you're right. Well said. It's still he's still knocking on the door, and we have to open it. Yes. If God got um, Paul's attention appropriate for Paul, he'll do the same for me. And other people around me may not understand it either or may understand it incorrectly. Uh, well said. Thank you. Let's see. Um, have you ever thought for a minute, uh, what if you were... Ananias. Ananias is the uh, is the convert that that uh, angel appeared in vision said the man Saul of Tarsus uh, is coming to see you. Have you have you ever wondered how how 
how things would be if, if you were Ananias? I mean, well, what would you what would you think? Uh, Bin Laden had a change of heart. You're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Think about that. What if what if an angel appeared before us and said, you know. Yeah, before before Bin Laden was killed, you know, Osama Bin Laden is coming to see you. He he's been converted. Take care of him. <laughs> now think about this. Well, what kind of what kind of faith? And Huge. you know, it, it even even with the vision, you know, from God. You know, how, how do we know it's from God? I, I would hope that I would. I mean, his uh, Ananias didn't say no. He asked a question. He, he tried to get some more information so he could understand better. I would hope I would do that. Right, but it, se- it seems like, you know, maybe it's just part of my my um, internal cynicism, but uh, it, it didn't seem like he, he asked a whole lot of questions. Well, it's not that we have... I mean, he, he didn't... Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, I, I would have tested the spirits a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have tested them um, exhaustively. But it's not a testament to his faith, though. I mean, he had confidence. He recognized the voice of God, and he—he, he, I think that's a testament to. I couldn't agree more. I, I think you're you're absolutely right. It's kind of similar to Abraham and, and Isaac's yeah. situation. I mean, Abraham obviously could have questioned as well, but he knew God well enough that he knew His voice. He he knew the. He wasn't listening, even though he had lots of questions as he made that trip. Even, even today, we have moments in our life where we look back on it and we said, yes, that was God speaking to me, and he was asking of me to make this decision or that, and I, and I chose one side or the other. We, we feel that. We look back at the Bible, and we, we can see these people. They had great faith, but we do that today, every day, each one of us. We have choices to make and to listen or not to listen to God's direction for our life. Uh, Jesus is speaking to us. His spirit is here within us right now. We have the opportunity to listen every day just like they did. Amen. The, the lesson uh, talks you know, a little bit about um, judging one's ministry. And my question was, you know, do, do you think our ministry here has been judged fairly or accurately and conversely um, have we have we ever misjudged someone else's ministry rhetorical questions you know we don't need to answer them uh, Wednesday's lesson this is a statement from well this is here again, we're, we're we're moving on to the gospel um, being taken to the Gentiles, which is what was the work that Paul was um, selected for. Um, and I, again, I'm taken back to you know, there's many many Old Testament references, um, even just alone in the Book of Isaiah that, that that state that the Gentiles are going to eventually be included in. Um, you know, God's plan of salvation. You know, God initially chose the children of Israel to reveal to the surrounding heathen nations the, the, his government, his character, and they failed miserably at that. Uh, and Isaiah prophesied down through, you know, a thousand years later that 
the, the, the gospel would eventually be taken to the Gentiles and they would be included. Um, this, is, this is a statement from prophets. And can, well, let me get back to my point. Um, just as, just as the, the Pharisees that, that had read all these prophecies and could sort of recite them from name missed the, uh, missed the coming of the Messiah, they also missed the idea that the, the prophecies would be taken to the Gentiles. And, and even in the early Christian church, this idea that the Gentiles should be included caused some issues. In later centuries of Israel's history, prior to the first Advent, Advent, it was generally understood that the coming of the Messiah was referred to in the prophecy, quote, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation until the end of the earth. This is from Isaiah 40, 49.6. Quotes from Prophets and Kings, page 68. Um, my, my thought was, you know, again, I, how do we apply this to, to our ministry today? I mean, are, are, do we have any Gentile concepts that, that prevent us from sharing our message uh, in our workplace, in our families, in our daily activities? Or, or do, we, do we think of any groups as Gentiles? Yes, Dave. Just going back a little bit before I end. Okay. Here. Um, when when uh, the angel spoke to, or God spoke to the uh, to Ananias, he was telling him what was taking place here, and he he said, uh, "Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel." For I will show him, Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So during this period of time, Paul was sitting there having to understand that if he made this change, he was going to have to suffer a lot. And also he was going to have to take this message to the Gentiles, which was totally against his upbringing and his character. Yeah. So in his uh, in preparation for this, Saul had gone through a lot of preparation in terms of studying scriptures. Ananias must have gone through a, somewhat of a preparation to be able to take this responsibility of taking him in and being gracious to him mm -hmm. and then for them to go on. So, you know, at this point in time, I think, uh, you know, we've had uh, Tim, for example, he has to understand if he takes this message forward, he's going to have to suffer. And we have to take it onto ourselves also the um, decision whether we're going to stand up and, and we will suffer. Uh, we're promised this. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes we want to step back, and say, "No, no, I'll just take it easy here. You know, don't don't ask me to do anything." Right. I don't want to make any waves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's a great point. Thank you. Yes, sir. I was going to say that <clears throat> the Jews themselves were instrumental in chasing Paul from the synagogues. Mm -hmm. they, so it came to a point that Paul said. I'm going to the Gentiles because I'm persecuted by the Jews. Wherever I go, people criticize me, throw me out of the synagogue. I'm going to the Gentiles. So the Jews were instrumental in this mission. Right. And, and yet, you know, it, throughout his life and throughout his writings, he still had a yearning for his own, his own family, his own race, his own blood. You know, he still had a yearning for the Jews. You know, it's... I think is generally most 
research that suggests that he was the author of Hebrews. I don't think we actually know, but you can see you can see through the writing of Hebrews that he's just pleading with them and setting out the case that that you know they they missed the Messiah and Christ was he. I was just going to say that it was a tremendous testimony that he had to give. Um, if it had just been a, a follower of Jesus who had um, believed all his life and had followed in his steps, it wouldn't have had the impact that it had when he said, I was killing the Christians, and now I believe so strongly. And that's kind of true of us, too, uh, in our testimony. I like to tell people what a difference this um, message has made in my life. Mm-hmm and how much it means to me, and to come to class and, and just experience it. So many people criticize without having experienced what we share with each other. I agree. All right, Thursday's lesson, Con- conflict within the church. <clears throat> it's a good thing we don't have to deal with any of that now, but we can, we can look back in time and, <laughs> and see what happened, and uh, we can maybe learn something from it. I don't know. Um, there was conflict about what? What was the conflict about here in in um, early Acts? Well, I heard it. Say it again. <laughs> the right of circumcision. What's the big deal about circumcision? It's a symbolic act. Yes, sir. It was about it was about this entire concept the Jews had that yes the Gentiles are going to be part of it, but first they have to become Jews. Right. <laughs> exactly. We're going to make you Jews, then you can. Right. When they eat the right food, when they lose some skin, when they uh, when they worship on the correct day, then then we'll allow it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm so I'm so glad we don't have to deal with that now. <laughs> Somebody came along today and showed all of us. Now you know the Sabbath is not of any significance anymore. Mm-hmm. Would we just jump into that? I mean, these people had. I mean, this was a, so much a part of their life that their circumcision was a, a really important thing that set them apart. It, it, it was, but it, what was it symbolic of? It was it was symbolic of you know the being separate, but you know the circumcision of the foreskin was symbolic of the circumcision of our hearts. Mm-hmm. You know, I will give you a heart of heart of flesh. I'll replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. The you know the circumcision of the heart is referred to in the Old Testament. This is a passage from Patriarchs and Prophets, which is loaded, I think. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. All right, let's stop for a minute. What was the law of God given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham? Thank you. Were the Ten Commandments around at that time? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. Take the Lord of thy name, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Is that around? Concepts were. The, the concept of thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your might, and all your spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself, that was around. That, that's, a, that's a great distillation of the law of love, but 
the commandments weren't around. All right, so if man had kept that law, there would have been no, no need for the ordinance of circumcision. Let's move on. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved on tablets of stone. And, and had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need for additional directions given to Moses. That's uh, Patriarchs of Proverbs 364. This is a loaded passage, people. Um, we, we have groups and, and entire uh, religions and churches that believe that the Ten Commandments are the end-all, be-all. They're the, the perfect embodiment, uh, or they're, they're the only embodiment of the law of God. That they are, that's it. Ten Commandments are it. If you don't observe them, you're going to hell. Not only that, but some even keep the ceremonial aspects. Well, that's, that's true. There, there are there are groups on earth that keep the keep the Mosaic law. All of these things were interventions given to humanity at a time when they needed it, at a time where God said, "Okay, I've got to do something, or else you know, my my." My name is going to be, uh, you know, my name and my character or the knowledge of, of God is going to be lost. So he intervened as needed. He, he, throughout time, since Adam and Eve fell, he's been trying to reveal to man his character and, and to and reinstill within humanity the, the nobility and perfection of character that uh, mankind was originally created with. And all of these interventions, the circumcision, the law, the Ten Commandments written on stone, the Mosaic Law, these were all interventions that were necessary at a time they were necessary. Yes? So what commandment was broken by Adam and Eve? The law, the law of love was broken by Adam and Eve. The law of God, the law of love, where they, they distrusted God that led to fear and selfishness and behaviors in accordance with fear and selfishness. All right, one one passage uh, from Friday's lesson that I thought was uh, interesting as well. This is uh, from Acts of the Apostles, page 124. A general slain in battle is lost to his army, but his death gives no additional strength to the enemy. But when a man of prominence joins the opposing force, not only are his services lost, but those to whom he joins himself gain a decided advantage. Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus, might easily have been struck dead by the Lord, and much strength would have been withdrawn from the persecuting power. But God in his providence not only spared Saul's life, but converted him, thus transferring a champion from the side of the enemy to the side of Christ. An eloquent speaker and a severe critic, Paul, with his stern purpose and undaunted courage, possessed the very qualifications needed in the early church. I think Paul's conversion is an excellent example of the uh, vengeance of God. He used the best method needed at that time to get Paul's attention, knowing that Paul's heart was still receptive to the Holy Spirit, and he healed Paul. Um, this was far more effective for the growth of the early church than just striking him dead. 
I mean, how, how do you think the, the forces of Satan felt when you're losing, losing this, this general in the army? <laughs> you know, this, this, is a ma- this is a major blow. Do you, you ever wonder if Satan gets tired of losing? <laughs> I mean, think about it. I, I guess, I mean, I, I don't understand it being that, that that can deal with this much time of, you know, apparent gains and then ultimately losing. I don't get it. Any other thoughts before we close? Yes, sir. I still think that Satan thought he won the battle when he executed almost all apostles besides John. I think all were executed or killed for their faith. And Satan, I think, had another victory to celebrate. Well, yeah, I mean, Satan thought he, Satan thought he won the war when he executed Christ. I mean, he, he, he's thought, he thought that when, when he got rid of the apostles. He thought that when, when Rome, you know, the, the early Roman church was persecuting the Christians and, and, you know, for 1,200 and whatever years. You know, he, he's thought he's had these victories. He's thought he's, you know, he thought he got down to before the flood. He he had so uh, convinced the you know, he so filled the world with wickedness that there was only one righteous man on the planet. He got very close then, but but he continue, he continues to be he continues to lose. How interesting is it? I think that um, when. When Saul saw the, the stoning of Stephen, that made such an impression upon him, and he was he was torn, but yet he didn't he didn't stop. He just he just was like you say, so full of energy and enthusiasm for the cause. He went out and just you know was was wreaking havoc within the church and the early believers. And how interesting is it that he? I mean, that turmoil was going on in him, but he was continuing to act. And how God had to make him stop. He had to slow him down and make him stop. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens to us every day, constantly. We, you know, I think we have these, like you say, we're, we're presented with these choices in our lives, but we're busy and we got to get up, we got to get the kids going and go to work and get the supper on the table and we don't stop. Right. We realize that these choices are being made by us and the implications of that. Yeah, inspiration doesn't give us any idea on how, how well Paul slept or how well Saul slept uh, at night. Um, I imagine there was a, a great, great struggle going on internally. There had to have been. If, if there, if there hadn't have been, I don't think he would have been converted even by a Damascus Road experience. Let's close with prayer, dear Heavenly Father. I want to thank you for the the insight and the um, example that you've set forth uh, with your servant Paul. We ask ask your guidance today as as we are uh, asked to encounter. Uh, a situation similar to what he faced. We ask for a, a greater measure of your truth and of your Holy Spirit to guide us along those pathways. Please be with those of our group who are not with us today for whatever reason. We ask that you bring them back like, safely in the weeks ahead. I ask you things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all.